morning, if you could turn with me to Genesis chapter 32, verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not go- let you go until unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed, Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everybody. My name is Pastor Dan. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and it's a privilege I have to open up this text out of Genesis with you all today. I wonder if you've done any thinking about wrestling with God. I'm sure that you have from time to time, and many of us in this room have distinct moments in our life where we say that God indeed wrestled with us. Our text today is about that very process. Mark Twain was once quoted as saying that there are two most important days in a man's life. The day that he was born and the day that he figures out why he was born. And in our text today, this day that Jacob is engaging with God is the most important day of his 97 years of life. It is the pinnacle of his life, for he discovers why he was born. He discovers what his purpose is and what the problem of his life has always been. And so I think even as we begin to think on wrestling with God and as we look at the story of Jacob and God wrestling, it's important for us to see how Jacob got to this very most important day. It's the day where he realized his purpose. And I pray that as we look at Jacob's life, maybe you and I will realize that the purpose of our days is to glorify God and live for his praise. And so as we begin some background on Jacob, many of you in this room know that Jacob is the grandson of Father Abraham. You know who Abraham is. Abraham was the man who God approached and said, go to a land that I will show you and I will make a people from you. And your people will be my people and this people will be a blessing to the world. And so through this man's lineage was a promise that there would ultimately be perpetual blessing on this earth as there is reproduction And ultimately, there will be a day when the Messiah would come from the lineage of Abraham. And that Messiah was the son of promise. But every generation previous to Jesus Christ's birth bore a son of promise through whom 
Jesus Christ would ultimately come. And so Abraham and his wife Sarah had a son, and his son, their son's name was Isaac. And Isaac was indeed the son of promise. Now Isaac married a woman by the name of Rebekah. And Rebekah and Isaac had twin sons, Esau and our man today, Jacob. And so the question is asked, or was asked then, when you have twin sons and there's a promise of a son of promise, who would be that son of promise? Traditionally, in this case, in that history, in that scenario, the older of the two would indeed be the son of promise. He would receive the blessing, and he would be the one through which the promise would continue. But however, as God so often does, he reverses the equation, and we read in Genesis 25, 23, that two nations are in Rebekah's womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And so the prophecy was given that, indeed, the younger of the two twins should be the son of promise. Well, Jacob, the younger, would be that son. So because this prophecy was the opposite of cultural norms, I'm sure that Isaac was not all that pleased with this to go dramatically against cultural norms. And so we can kind of deduce from some of the conversation that Isaac has with his family and ultimately with Esau that he's not ultimately in favor of the blessing going to the younger, of upsetting the cultural norms. And so in Genesis chapter 27, he has this conversation, Isaac does, with Esau. And he says to Esau, Now, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out into the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. So a prophecy has been known by Isaac that the younger shall serve the older, but a choice has been made by Isaac to give that blessing to the older. So Jacob's mother, Rebekah, overhears this promise from Isaac to Esau, and she goes to Jacob. And in Genesis chapter 27, we read that Jacob fools old blind and uh, Isaac into blessing him rather than Esau. It's a great story. I invite you to look it up if you want to read something about intrigue and deception. And so Jacob ultimately gains the blessing from Isaac through an act of deception. But in doing so, the words of God are proven true. The older shall serve the younger. Now Isaac, you can imagine, is shaken by what has just occurred as Jacob has deceived him and received the blessing. And he's shaken by this act, but he's more so shaken by the reality that he had in that point in time that God's sovereign choice has proven true despite his best efforts to go against it. And so Esau, I'm sure you can all identify with him, is not all that pleased with the reality that Jacob has stolen his blessing. And as siblings often do, he utters some threats against Jacob. We read in Genesis that Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are close. Then I will kill Jacob. Needless to say, this is not a close relationship between Jacob and Esau. And so for Jacob, upon hearing this threat from Esau, 
he now begins what would be the trajectory of his life for many, many, many decades. And that is the life of wandering, a life of fleeing, a life of engaging others and then fleeing from them. Jacob wandered for decades. He married, he had sons, he acquired wealth, but functionally he was continually at unrest because Esau was out there somewhere. And so Jacob lived his entire life thinking that his biggest problem was Esau. And if it wasn't Esau, then his biggest problem was Isaac. And if it wasn't Isaac, then his biggest problem was Laban. The problem that Jacob thought he had was people. And so when we approach Genesis chapter 32, we see Jacob now moving, wandering again, but this time intentionally moving towards the promised land that God had promised Abraham. He's returning to the land. And as he returns to the land, we read in Genesis 32 that Jacob's servants have seen Esau on the horizon. And not just Esau, but Esau with 400 men. You can just imagine Jacob's response to this. This is not one where he's excited to go meet Esau and his 400 men. This is a moment of terror for Jacob as everything in his life is now coming to a head where he has to face the one that he has deceived, the one that has uttered murderous threats against him, and his 400 men are coming against him. So Jacob does what he has always done in his life. He devises a plan by which to handle the situation. And that's what we see at the beginning of Genesis chapter 32. His plan was a great one. Jacob would take all of his wealth and divide it into two camps. By dividing it into two camps, he reasons that if Esau attacks one camp, the other camp can get away and at least Jacob can preserve half of his wealth. So that's step one. Step two then is to put together a huge gift out of that camp and send it on to Esau. So he does that. This gift that consists of flocks of all types of animals and all people he sends before him to Esau. And he decides to send these gifts to him the night before he goes with the hope that Esau would see these gifts, have time to think upon this, recognize that maybe there can be peace with Jacob. And so when Jacob finally goes and meets with Esau, maybe he won't die after all. Jacob's working the system a bit. And that brings us to the section you just heard read. As Jacob sends everything he has across the river, he returns back across the river. So he's on the side farthest away from Esau and his band of men, and he was left alone. And so we look at Genesis 32, verse 24. We read that as Jacob was left alone, a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Jacob is an all alone by himself, and this man shows up, an opponent of Jacob, who was more than just a mere man. But you can imagine Jacob's response as he is alone, preparing for an engagement with Esau, reflecting on what could potentially be in front of him. And this man engages him in a wrestling match, a fight for his life ensues. Now we have the privilege of knowing ahead and looking at verse 30 and seeing that the man who actually wrestled with Jacob was indeed God in human form. For in verse 30 of Genesis 32, Jacob names the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. God indeed was wrestling with Jacob. 
And I want us to pull a couple things out here. God initiates the contact with Jacob. Jacob doesn't want to fight anybody. This is why he's dealing with Esau the way that he is. And yet here, God shows up and initiates contact. And I just want to pause and say to you today that God initiates contact with a purpose. Some of you nodded your head when I said, I wonder if you've ever wrestled with God. Understand that God initiates that contact with you so that you will then grow in ways of surrender to his good and faithful reign. And so let's not sanitize this story in particular, though, in Genesis 32. In Hebrew, which is what Genesis was written in, the word wrestle actually means to make dust. It's a great phrase. It's a great picture, isn't it? When God contacts Jacob and begins to engage him, he takes him to the ground. He makes dust with Jacob. This is not a fun little WWF engagement in a ring. This is a on-the-ground scrap between the holy God and Jacob. And on a side note as well, when God engages you and I in wrestling, it's a painful thing, isn't it? It makes dust. He takes us down to the ground from time to time. I wonder if you can identify with that reality. Do you have a distinct moment in your life when God has taken you to the ground? It's important to ask those questions. It really is. It's important to pause and think back or even identify presently that we are in a match with God that we don't quite understand. And even as we engage this text, you, I want us all to think on the reality that your wrestling match, that my wrestling match with God is engaged by God with his intent for his good purposes. He's a good God with good design. And so as he engages us, he does so with that in mind. So four lessons as we look at this passage today on why God wrestles with us and how we can come through it and what it means as we go through it. And they all begin with the letter C. Keep this nice and easy for us today. The first one is when we wrestle with God, it leads to a correction. As you look at this passage, you'll see that Jacob's on his way to engage his brother. And as we said earlier, he thinks that the entire issue of his life are people. Perhaps that's you and I. Maybe we think the issues of our life surround other people. But God engages him to show him that the real issue isn't people. It isn't other people. Jacob's real issue is with God. And so God engages Jacob with the intent of clarifying that. And often, this is the starting point of God wrestling with us. Many of us look at life and we have trouble after trouble after trouble and we're like, well, it's just other people. It's, it's the scenarios I find myself in. And there's some truth to those realities. But oftentimes we think the solution to our life is just fixing those issues. When in reality, the issue that many of us have is that we are at unrest with the holy God. And how do we know? Well, there's a dissonance that is occurring within us. If you're a musician in this room, you know that that word dissonance is a musical term, actually. And it's used in music to create a sense of unrest. It's used to cause the ear to perk up. When someone writes a song or some chords and they put minors and majors together to form a sense of dissonance, it causes your head to tilt sideways. I got on the old internet machine this week and looked up what dissonance actually 
is used for in music theory. And one of the websites said that in music theory, dissonance is used to promote movement in the piece of music, to bring about attentiveness, and ultimately to desire resolution. I thought that was a really unique definition. For when we think about God wrestling with us and the dissonance within our heart as we attempt to live outside of his reign, there's a sense of dissonance within us. And that dissonance is meant to actually cause us to seek out resolution. It's, cause, it's meant to cause us to find that resolution in the one who actually has made us. For God in his graciousness has created every single human with a sense of his presence. We see that in Acts chapter 17. And as we live outside of his presence, that's where that dissonance within us grows and grows and grows. And no matter how much other noise we attempt to create in our lives to silence that dissonance, it doesn't happen. No amount of success, no amount of relationships, no amount of power can silence the dissonance within us when we live outside of God's reign. But God is gracious in that he then makes dust with us. He wrestles us. He engages us with questions about our dissatisfaction. When you are in the quiet and you feel the dissatisfaction in your heart, that is God making dust with you. And so I wonder, do you feel like God is making dust with you of late? I wonder if you recognize that in this wrestling that God is actually correcting your heart on what the real issue actually is to your life. So wrestling with God leads to correction. Tim Keller says that God chooses to wrestle us into a transformed life rather than comfort us into a transformed life. It's only in the wrestling that we recognize the foundations upon which we based our life on were erroneous and faulty. So God wrestles with us to correct us. And that leads inevitably to what we see in verse 25. And that is that wrestling with God leads to a confession. Look to your text here. In verse 25, we see Jacob engaged with this man who we know to be God. In verse 25, it reads as such. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Many of us, your first instinct when you read that, you say, wait a second, God can't overcome a 97-year-old man? What kind of God is this? It's not that God couldn't overcome Jacob. It's that God wouldn't overcome Jacob. A decisive, overpowering victory wasn't what was needed for Jacob in this point in time. What was needed was a prolonged engagement, a prolonged match of wrestling. We know that God could have overcome Jacob. Why? Because he simply touched his hip and put it out of socket. So the power was there. But there needed to be a long, prolonged wrestling match upon which Jacob then realized that his only response at this point in time is to cling to the one who he is wrestling to. And so Jacob clings to God in this moment, but as he clings to him, all that he wants in this point in time is a blessing from this God. It's interesting that he says he wants a blessing from this man that he's wrestling, for he recognizes that this man has all that he actually needs. But we know a lot about Jacob, so you can imagine what kind of blessing Jacob is actually seeking. Maybe it's the type of blessing we actually seek from God. More. <laughs> 
More, 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 right? More health, more wealth, more prosperity, more property, more things of this world. God, give us the things that we want. And notice God's unique engagement with Jacob here. As Jacob pleads for a blessing, God responds to him in not answering that question about the blessing, but simply says, well, what's your name? Who are you? He actually is answering that question as it should be answered. You want a blessing? Well, who are you? You see, the reality is that Jacob had to come to a point of confession. He had to recognize who he is in the presence of God. And who was Jacob? Jacob had to utter his name in the presence of the holy God. And you recognize in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew tradition, that a name recognized and represented who you were as a person. And so when Jacob says, I am Jacob, what is he actually saying? Well, in Genesis 25, 26, we get a little bit of a clue about this. We read that of the birth of Jacob and Esau, after Esau came out, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. And so his name was Jacob. And if you go to Genesis 25, you can see at the bottom of your Bible some notes defining what that name means. And that name means heel grabber. Right? That's a great name. Well, he's grabbing his heel. Let's call him Jacob. But it also means he cheats. So Jacob's name, his representation of himself before the holy God was Jacob saying, I am a man who cheats. I'm a manipulator. I'm the one who uses other people. And we see that through the entirety of Jacob's life, that he was one who manipulated situations to his benefit time and time and time and time and time again. And he even did it with God. In Genesis chapter 28, verses 20 through 21, Jacob engages God. And even in the best scenario, as he prays to God, he says to him this, then Jacob made a vow to God saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me the bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. He made an if-then statement to God. I wonder if you've ever done that. God, if you do these, then I'll do this. That's not wrestling with God. That's manipulating God. And confession at this point in time for Jacob is him saying, I am at the end of myself. I have nothing more to offer you, God. He, I am Jacob, and I live in my Jacobness. I wonder if you've come to that point with the holy God where you say, I am Dan. Don't say my name. Use yours. And maybe you're afraid to do so. And that's something for you to think on. Because as God wrestles with Jacob and Jacob confesses that he's indeed Jacob, we see them move into a next phase of the match. And, by the way, when we confess, we move into the next phase of the match with God. And look what that next phase is. When you wrestle with God, it leads to a conversion. Verse verse 29 of chapter 32, this story goes on. Uh, Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob. Right? But Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. This is an amazing moment for Jacob. And this should be by connection an amazing realization for us as we read this. God renames Jacob. Who can rename somebody? 
I can't go to any of you and say, you shall be called Steve. That's not how that works. The only way that you can name someone is if you have authority over them or you are the one who has created them. And here God looks at him and says, I rename you because I have ultimate authority over you. And he didn't just name him some random name. In fact, he gave him his own name. For the name that he gave Jacob now is no longer deceiver, cheater, manipulator. It is Israel, which means God strives. (laughs) So instead of being known as one who cheats, you will now be known as one who God Almighty strives for. And that's a pretty fantastic transition, isn't it? And so Jacob goes from one who is manipulating to now one who is known as the God, who has God who strives for him, God who fights for him. And this is the pinnacle of the story for Jacob. There is now a new name given to him. The old Jacob has been addressed by the holy God through a wrestling match. And there is a conversion that occurs. And that's his pinnacle of his story for Jacob. And by the way, that's the pinnacle of our story. When you wrestle with God, you come to God wrestling in your own name, in your own power, your own identity. You attempt to name yourself your whole life. And when you wrestle with God, by his good graciousness, he then gives you a new name. And what is that new name? It is the name that he gives you, which is forgiven. Why does he do this? (laughs) Why does God give us a new name? Why in 1996 did he give me a new name? Because he loves us. And because he desires us to be his child. And he knows everything there is to know about you. Which is why he knows you need him. J.I. Packer talks about this reality of the power of God's love and redemption when he says this, there's tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic. It's based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way that I am so often disillusioned about myself. He knows you and he gives you a a new name. And how does this happen for us? There's a practice by which this actually occurs. And you hear about it week in and week out from this pulpit. It's the principle of adoption. He brings you into his family through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. Two passages just to highlight the reality and the immense love that God has for you. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. In the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You know what happens when you are adopted? You're given a new name. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit into you, crying out, Abba, Father. You have a new way of calling out to God. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Paul wrote both these passages, and you notice the 
similar theme and similar words in both of them. The idea of adoption is a pretty important thing for Paul because he recognized the old way of life has been bought by Jesus Christ and a new name has been given to him. And I pray that as you wrestle with God, you realize that very same truth today. And so God wrestles with Jacob to give him a new name. There's a conversion that occurs. And what that actually means is conversion means that you are completely and totally transformed as you have been touched by the holy God. By the way, it's impossible to come into the presence of the holy God and go away unchanged. And so when God wrestles with you, when you are corrected in your understanding of what's the issue in your life, and when you are confessing and realizing that God indeed gives you a new name and you are converting then to follow after him, nothing is ever the same. It simply can't be. Which leads to the last point. As you wrestle with God, the fourth C is that you will then walk in a new godly confidence. And we see that with Jacob here in verse 30 and 31. Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. So Jacob comes out of this wrestling with God with a limp. And that limp was with him the rest of his days on this earth. Every time he took a step, he remembered the moment that God himself touched him and gave him a new name. And so things were completely different for him. But it wasn't the limp that he was concerned about. It was the fact that he had seen God face to face, and yet through God's grace, he was delivered. Tim Keller writes that so many of the most God-blessed people limp as they dance for joy. God has touched each one of us in this room in some way. Call it a wound of grace. He's redeemed you from something, but there's still a mark of his work. There's some pain from the past from time to time. And as we walk as people who have been redeemed by grace, we remember those things and celebrate the grace that has redeemed us, not the wound itself. You know, you have to think that Jacob was exhausted after that night. But it's not like an exhaustion that he had never known before. Maybe you've had that with God when you've wrestled with him, when you finally have surrendered to his reign. There's a sense of tiredness, but there's also an exhilaration. There's peace where there was none. There's hope where there was hopelessness. It's all because God has engaged you. And notice what Jacob does as he limps. He names the place where God wrestled him. So even as he was given a new name, then he names the place with a new name. And the reality is he says, God has seen me face to face, and I have seen God face to face. This idea of face carries with it not the idea of literal face, for no one can see the face of God and live. We read that later in Exodus. But we see the character as we look at the face. That's what's meant here. And so Jacob says, God has seen my full character, my Jacobness. I have seen his full character, his graciousness. And because of his graciousness, I now survive. And he names that place Peniel. You know, the reality is that when you've been touched by God's grace, that reality of being forgiven by his grace renames everything that you touch. You can't help but rename every place and every situation that you enter into with his grace. That's how that works. And that's how it worked with Jacob. Peniel, God's grace is evident here. 
And then Jacob goes on. He limps onward. This wasn't a moment where everything stopped for him. When God redeems you, when God gives you a new name, there's still things to do. There's still life to be lived. And for Jacob, he had to limp onward. And so what does he do? He just survived the night with the holy God. An engagement with Esau was nothing. So he limps across the river. He leads his people to Esau's presence. And when he sees Esau, we read in Genesis 33, verse 10, in the words of Paul Harvey, right, the rest of the story, he goes and he meets Esau and he says, Esau, if I have found favor in your sight, accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Jacob talks about faces a lot, doesn't he? And that's important for us to note because the grace of God that has preserved him over that night of wrestling, he then sees in the person that he has conflict with, he gives grace and recognizes it as an opportunity for a new beginning. And there's humility that defines Jacob. There's moments of graciousness as he approaches another. And as we walk as humble people, redeemed by the work of Jesus Christ and by God's grace through Christ, there's a humility that descends upon us. For we are accepted by the Holy God. We are forgiven by the Holy God. And so we have nothing but grace to give others. And in that, humility is actually all the strength that we need in this life. And so we engage the brokenness of this life with relationships, with physical things, with spiritual struggles, with the gracious humility that has redeemed us. Paul recognizes this. He writes about it, about his own struggle. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he comes to this conclusion that he says, God's grace is sufficient for me, for God's power is made perfect in my weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with my weaknesses, with my wounds of grace, with the insults, the hardships, the persecutions, and the calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Those who have been touched by God's grace walk daily in the humble strength of that grace. And that's ultimately what this passage is about. This passage tells us that God wrestles with us to release us from our sin to release us from our self-sufficiency, from our pride, from our past, and to free us to live in his name, celebrating his goodness. And my question for you today is this. Maybe you feel like God is wrestling you. Maybe you feel like God is making dust with you. Pay attention to that. For he desires to correct. He desires you to confess. He desires to give you a new name that you might walk in a new confidence, and that name is forgiven. So I pray that this day will be the day in which you surrender to the God who makes dust with you. For God will wrestle with us to reveal our weaknesses, that we might in turn live in his strength. Let me pray for you guys. I thank you, Lord, for this word, and I thank you, Father, for the reality that this word brings to our hearts. In your grace, you engage broken sinners. And in our sin, that is often a painful process. 
And so, Lord, I pray that in this time and in this moment that if by your spirit you are touching on the hearts of those in this room, Lord, that there would be response and surrender, that we would call out to you as our God who indeed brings about healing in a new name, Lord, that we would confess our sins with full belief that you will forgive and give us a new life. So I pray that over this room this morning, may you do work in the hearts of men and women in this room. For those of us who already call you Savior and yet you are wrestling with us, Lord, may you reveal those areas that we need to fully surrender to you. Lord, may you sanctify us day by day, step by step, moment by moment, that we might ultimately live in your strength, not our own. And Lord, may you use all of our days to glorify your good, worthy, and holy name. And we pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.